Hey everybody, what's up? It's your boy MJ. By now, you should know that I love Grenache. In fact, I always say that Pinot Noir wants to be Grenache when it grows up. That's why I'm so excited to be a part of the first annual Grenache Fest. It's taking place on November 3rd, 2023 in downtown Walla Walla, Washington at the Historic Motor Co. We're going to kick things off with a seminar moderated by yours truly at 5 p.m., followed by live music, food, wine, and fun from 7 p.m. until. While the seminar is sold out, there are still a few tickets left for the festival, which will feature performances by Stephen Malkmus, M. Ward, and Mark Pickerel. Go to GrenacheFest.com for more information and to purchase your tickets today. Hey, I'm MJ Taller also known as a black wine guy. I went from being a totally obsessed wine newbie to becoming the world's first ever African-American fine and rare wine auctioneer in less than three years. In this show, I'll be talking to the mavericks, the philosophers, the players, and the deep thinkers who inhabit the world of wine. They'll share their experiences on how they made it, but more importantly, how they failed and got back up again. So grab a glass and let's get to it. This is the Black Wine Guy Experience. Hey everybody, what's up? It's your boy MJ. Welcome to the Black Wine Guy Experience. My guest today is a food and beverage journalist, beer educator, and the author of How to Taste, A Guide to Discovering Flavor and Savoring Life. Welcome, Mandy Neglish. Uh, Mandy is an advanced Chicharone, and she's an AROXA uh, certified taster. Uh, she's fully certified by the WSET in spirits, and she is also a national homebrew competition gold medalist. Um, she is one of less than 100 advanced Chicharones in the world, and her book has been described as a sumptuous behind-the-scenes tour and a fun, appetizing an informative how-to that covers everything from wine and cheese to ice cream and honey, tea, chocolate, and even water. Everybody, welcome Mandy. It's so fun to be here. I'm excited to catch up. Yes. Um, Mandy and I met. Uh, Mandy was a judge. If you guys remember the Hello Grappa episodes I did, dropped earlier this year. I met Mandy. Uh, Mandy was brave enough to come over on the couch and talk to me, which was so much fun. And she was, I think her book was just released. And, uh, was, and uh, I was like, you know, I have to have you on the podcast because she was so much fun. And as you guys are going to find out. Um, Mandy, what did you, and now you are... You know, you you're you're a certified taster. You got your spirits certification, and and your book, like I said, from wine and cheese. So so, what did you bring today? So I brought my favorite, just like go to cava that I literally keep a case of in my closet at all times. It's called Campo Viejo. It's like eight bucks if you can get it at a good price. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's yeah, I love cava. I love bringing around sparkling because you first of all don't need an opener. So like, love that. And bubbles are always great. It can go with really high-end stuff, but also, like, great for a picnic, great for a tailgate. I don't know. Yeah, no, it's great. <laughs> Any kind of, yeah, affordable cava bubbles. I'm, I'm not really a Prosecco girl, but. Uh, yeah, I don't want to diss Prosecco, but Prosecco yeah. at, at the typical price range tends to be a little too sweet for me. You mm -hmm. have to go up to, like, some of the DOCG stuff. and Right, if you get Francia the extra order, brew, yeah, yeah. yeah, which is, it's delicious, but at the typical, you know, like. Walking in the door, 
eight to ten bucks, it's really hard to beat Cava. Yeah. In my opinion. Especially in New York City, if you buy it by the case, you get a twenty percent exactly. discount. There you go. Exactly. Like all over it. <laughs> so awesome. Well, you know, uh, I like to start at the beginning. Yeah. So where are you from? That's a great question. I was born in Dallas, but moved almost immediately to Philadelphia, okay. north of Philadelphia. Cheers, by Cheers. the way. Cheers. Um, so uh, I went to grad school in Camden and then lived in Philadelphia for the year afterwards. So where okay. north of Philadelphia were you? Bucks County. My dad was okay. working in Princeton. He still does, actually. Yep. At the big Bristol Myers Squibb campus there. Okay. So, yeah. No, no New Jersey very well. I used to travel around playing soccer there. So. <laughs> yes. Getting your ass kicked because New Jersey... Yeah, so- College of New Jersey yeah, exactly. is where I went to soccer camp. Like <laughs> the best. <laughs> and and we 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 do a little warm up, you guys. I've okay. put put it out before. Uh, sometimes I'll uh, tease with it. And uh, Mandy played soccer, and uh, her favorite athlete's Mia Hamm. You know, so um, yeah, I still have my little jersey and everything from the World <laughs> Cup years and years ago. That's awesome. So um, your dad was in pharmaceuticals. Yeah. Um, Still is cancer research. Wow. So what does he do? What's his What's his background? Um, he's a microbiologist. Shit. So he's yeah. He worked on um, CRISPR. I don't know if you've heard mm. all the CRISPR drama. It's kind of the. Uh, I think it's actually the gene they used in some of the um, vaccinations that kind of cuts it cuts into your gene so you can uh, insert something else to do things like cure cancer. Hopefully. Right. Um, so yeah, very technical. Very. I used to go to um, take your daughter to work day and play with all these hamsters and bunnies, and I had no idea they, they, they were. <laughs> Here you play with the hamsters. I was like, oh, great. And I'm like, oh, I, hope them. I hope they're all okay. Naming them and shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what happened to mm-hmm. Fuzzy? Mm-hmm. Well, Fuzzy saved a, mil- uh, a million lives. Exactly. Um, and what did your mom do? Was she stayed home or was she also a career? Um, she w- she was a phlebotomist. So Jesus. Yeah, my dad school. was my mom's TA. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, <laughs> back in the day. Yeah. When when you could when when a college professor could sleep with their TA, or I mean, the TA, I feel like a TA is not as and they're bad, not because right? they're yeah. I mean, she's yeah. a, I mean, you know, it's not like she's some seventeen year old girl just got off the turnip truck going to college. Exactly, and she's already been through school. Right, and if you're a TA, you're obviously you have a higher level of intelligence <laughs> than the average college student. Yeah, I just love it that they like. She has like a note that she passed her sorority sister that was like, "I'm gonna marry our TA." And she did it. So that is, set see, a goal, that. you know. That, that is very cute. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Um, so, yeah, so you come from a strong academic background, clearly. It's so funny because they really, they both were like, do not go into the sciences, mm-hmm. do not go into academia. They, like, that's the only thing they did not encourage me to do, which is I feel like so many people my age, like were encouraged to go into STEM. So many women were encouraged yeah. to go into yeah, STEM. Yeah. And they really discouraged it, but I, I found my way. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Yeah. And so Bucks County um, – because we have people listen all over. Bucks County is known for like a lot of antiquing, and it says there's like a, also is there an Amish population in Bucks? It's a little bit north of us yeah. that really gets Amish, but exactly yeah, right, there's right. some definitely. I remember going on like school trips to the Philadelphia Zoo, and like all the Amish schools would come on the same day as us and stuff, and we'd be like, "Wow, look, look at their uh, yeah, yeah." When you're look, little, look at their clothes. Yeah, they're all dressed the same. <laughs> Learned how to churn butter very young. <laughs> <laughs> um, and do you have any siblings? Yeah, I have a little brother. Okay. And what was your relationship like? Because I had to know. First of all, how many years old are you? 
How many years old am I? Yeah, how many years older than oh, your brother? Oh, I was like, you? how old am I? No. Um, four. So we were never in the same school. Okay. He was always like coming up right yep. behind me. Yep. Okay. Um, so I think that's hard when you're young. We were both very active in our extracurriculars as well. Mm-hmm. Now, actually, during the pandemic, he moved to the city, which has been really nice. I can invite him to dinner parties and things like that. Um, so I feel like in our adulthood, we've gotten a lot closer. But yeah. Was he a little annoying? Did you guys get into fights? My sister was three years older than me, and we actually we did – I was a freshman. She was a senior. So I did have that going on. Uh But when we were younger, I was like, I was the little brother who would like antagonize her and like. Yeah, I think that's your job. You know, cut off her Barbie's hair and melt. I mean, I mean, so were you guys, uh, are you, but you know, obviously we weren't doing as many activities as you guys. Perhaps got the energy out of you. Yeah. My little brother was a swimmer and he would travel like the whole country swimming and stuff. So, um, I think if anything, we just didn't see each other except for on family vacations when you have plenty of time to antagonize other people and run around. So, um, yeah, we got a lot closer. Like after he went to Scotland. Uh, school in Kentucky. I went back to Texas. So um, now that we live in the same city, we're a lot closer. Cool. And so what was it like in your house growing up uh, gastronomically with food, food at wise, um, wine wise, what what was kind of going on in your home growing up? I would say, I mean, of course, like blessings to my mother and everything, but rather basic. She Mm. used uh, Cooking Light magazine. I remember always being there. And Mm. even when we'd cook Thanksgiving, we'd both have different you know, versions of Cooking Light magazine, cooking recipes out of it. Um, so that's definitely something. And we were on the road a lot. Uh, so we ate out, but nothing. I wouldn't say we were very, like, gastronomically driven as a family. Mm-hmm. We did a lot of beach vacations, a lot of, like, Disney World. Um, so I didn't really get into adventurous food until, like, college. Okay. Um, beach vacation. So typically, so did you guys go to Jersey Shore or would you, like – go to like South Carolina because when I lived, I lived in Philadelphia, everybody yep. would go down to like. You just nailed it. Myrtle just, Beach, baby. There you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it, there's a few places. Like, <laughs> yeah. We would go to Myrtle Beach like every other summer and then the Jersey Shore for like day trips. And, yeah. Like we had a family friend who had a house there that sometimes we could, you know, bum off and stuff. So yeah, those are the two spots. Yeah. Yeah. That's so funny. <laughs> um, and so you're in high school, you're playing soccer. Mm-hmm. Um And did you continue your soccer career in college? So I actually switched almost completely to dance. Okay. um, And I was like, I was on the traveling dance. um, Yeah. Competitive dance team. Squad. Is it called squad or team? Yeah. Team for dance. Yeah. yeah. And then I did dance my first year in college. Um, But it's not as cool as cheerleading. Like the dancers are like whatever. So I was like, I'd rather be watching the football games than. So yeah, where yeah. you, you said you went back to Texas where you're born. Where'd you go to where'd you go to college? I went to TCU. I went to the Schieffer School of Journalism there. Oh, so Bob Schieffer was a big I know. Texas you, Christian. Horned yes, frogs. The horned frogs. I was gonna say if you follow college football, you know our plights. Um we just got really embarrassed last year at the national championships. But yeah. Uh, the semifinals were great. I was there. In, oh, uh, you also Phoenix. got embarrassed by uh, Colorado. Everybody after opening. <laughs> Coach season. Prime, how yeah, are you going to do that? To I, I know, like, <laughs> they were like, everybody was doubting him, and I know they they had a rough go with the you know the other game they had, but like everybody like. They were like, they just whipped up on a team that was playing for the national championship. But I, like I was saying, at least we got totally embarrassed in the national championship too. So it's like, so it was like, yeah, it's like pretty it was like, easy to stomp. Yeah, us it was, it was kind of like it was like, well, you know, we're we're kind of still recuperating. Mm-hmm. I know TCU because I ran track, and you guys used to have a, a really good track and field team. You used to get a lot of Jamaican dudes. Um, oh, really? Back in the 
late 80s when and early 90s when I was in college. We had two alums in the U.S. Open that just happened, too. So oh, really? See, look at our sports team. No one thinks about us. Little Horned Frogs. But well, Texas is such a big state and such a sports state. Yeah. Um, so what was it like moving from, uh, you know, like that Princeton, Bucks County area? Mm-hmm. And where's TCU located? Fort Worth. Fort Worth. Okay, so Dallas, Fort Worth. Yeah. Okay. What was it like moving to, to Fort Worth? It was cra- I mean, it was wild because, yeah, the just the like culture and style is so different in Texas. Like everyone, I mean, as a young girl going to college, like everyone's big hair, the way everyone dressed. Like I was wearing my hardtail pants and like my juicy sweatsuits and stuff, which were very big in Philly when I was growing up. My Uggs. And yeah, everyone just dressed very differently. Yeah. I remember the first time washing my hands like at the um, orientation, the girl next to me at the sink said like, hi, how are you? And I was like, oh, you, oh you're confusing me with someone. Like, you don't know me because really, <laughs> you would never that nice. do that. <laughs> and she was like, what? Like, and so it was just like getting to know That's funny. a totally different culture. But I think everyone should do that. I feel like I understand people so much better and differently just kind of, yeah, growing up, you know, to being 18 in Philly and then growing up becoming a, a more mature adult in a totally different culture and kind of, you know, I don't want to say you always need to see both sides, but just understanding where people come from, the way life is centered a little differently in the South. Um, I just think it's, yeah, it's made me a, a better, more empathetic person. Yeah, for sure. No, I, I, I think there's nothing wrong with seeing both sides. You can still have your side, but yeah, we, we live in a world right now where people don't want to see the other side. Like they can make no concessions and that's mm-hmm. not, healthy yeah, in my just, opinion yeah and you understand people's like motivations and right what, I mean, yeah you yeah. can be like i'm like okay i see why you would like people don't understand like i see why if you grew up that way mm-hmm. you would feel that like that like that's all you know right right and 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 don't want to make anybody wrong but like that ability like i think that, and you study journalism so that mm-hmm. is also very important did you yes now did you know you're going to study journalism when you were going that, that you said you went there for to go to that school yeah i wanted i wanted to be the nightly news anchor that was like the dream for me so yeah i went to broadcast journalism school and uh, minored in political science okay wow <laughs> so all right so i who was like who was like your who was on TV that you wanted to be like? Like, I mean, Katie Couric, of course. Okay. Like, she's the, the icon. I mean, honestly, though, like, of course, Oprah. I used to go to the rec at our, like, the gym, I guess, at the college and, like, watch Oprah on the elliptical. Like, that was, like, my favorite thing to do every day. So, yeah, I, like, love, yeah, I love all of them. Barbara Walters. Yeah. It doesn't mean, I mean, I might still, who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, you, know, <laughs> you, got, you wrote a book. Anything's possible. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, so you're in college. You're in Texas. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you were exposed to barbecue. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> what, the best. What was that like? I mean, because we think we have barbecue. We have, we have barbecues. We throw some burgers and hot dogs on the grill, maybe mm-hmm. some chicken. What was like? Like, like, did did someone in your dorm say, oh, you got, you got to go to this barbecue? And I was like, how was your introduction to Texas barbecue? So I was really lucky to work um, at Tim Love's restaurant, Lonesome Dove. Oh, wow. He also has a couple other restaurants. One of them was a barbecue restaurant. Um, so that was really my first introduction was through his. Um, I couldn't afford to, <laughs> to eat anywhere else. So anything, you know, you can get your, your employee discount on. Um, but yeah, I had had Carolina barbecue when I was going to Myrtle Beach every summer. But so different, so bright and vinegar and um, very different than that, like really smoke forward. I'd never tasted yeah. a brisket till I got to Texas. Um, that really like smoke forward, dry barbecue. Um, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. 
So you're in school, you're studying journalism, broadcast journalism specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just talked about Tesla. Were there any other, like, also then you had, you're not that far south, but I'm sure there was still Tex-Mex. You were like, mm-hmm. also something different than you probably didn't have in Philadelphia, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, Tim also focuses on game meat. So I tried um, kangaroo for the first time, mm. uh, rattlesnake, elk, bison, all of those kind of things that were very out of my comfort zone. And I actually kind of look to that now as how I got into food. I think if I wouldn't have worked there, I would still be quite picky. I was a pretty picky eater going into school, but you're forced when you I work mean, there. Cooking you light. The whole I menu. mean, like, you're like, uh, um, yeah, pork none, chops. Of this, none of this is on the cooking light uh, prescribed list of foods. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I was, yeah, I was eating like pork chops and salmon were like my most exotic things growing up. So yeah. Rattle, uh, what was it? Kangaroo nachos. Fantastic. Kangaroo nachos. Yeah. All right. So what does kangaroo taste like? <laughs> I mean, it's very, I would consider it more similar to something like elk. It's definitely um, has that little bit of like metallic gaming. Yeah, that, to that it. Uh, iodine. Um, yeah, like a little bit like a skirt steak in yeah. texture, um, but still like delicious and not, you know, once you start eating all the different meats, they're not, there's not that much difference you can taste. Although I've heard penguin tastes crazy. We'll see. <laughs> Is it legal to eat penguins? <laughs> That's how people used to ship get shipwrecked would like avoid scurvy. No, I believe it, but I, like I mean, it's it's like just <laughs> penguin. Wow. Yeah. All right, you need it. You need a TV show. We'll see. Mandy we'll see. eats penguin. Well, and like people used to eat peacocks for Thanksgiving. That was like the big. You were very fancy in like Amsterdam if you ate a peacock. And I'm like, oh, now I really want to eat a peacock. I just want to see. I just want to see what it would taste like. There's this. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to hunt them. I know. There's this. Uh, <clears throat> I watched the show Billions. I've watched. I, I, I'll get on the show. So I've been watching Billions since uh-huh. it came on. And one of the early seasons, there was there's this little bird in France that they, you can't do. Oh. But they. they Ordelon. And, and, and yes, in the cognac. and like, They like drown them. They drown them. <laughs> and you eat the whole thing. Like eat everything. Yep. Um, but that's, I think, I think, like you said, like. As humans became demented, like everything was was literally fair game. Yeah, exactly, fair game. That's exactly right. right? Like, yeah. I was like, "Yo, I'm hungry. Yo, what's yeah. that on the ground?" Like, like yeah. I mean, you know. And how can I make it taste good? Because right. it's all I have to eat. So yeah. Um. So that's so fun. Yeah. <laughs> or a, lot, a peacock. Wow that that would be fancy, right? Yeah, they would like serve the feathers sticking out of it. I'm after sure they cooked. would. Yeah. That's it's all about the presentation. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um. That's so cool. So, uh, and and what and you were a server there. Were you? Is that what you did there? Yeah, I was um hostess, maitre d mostly. Got, I, okay, yeah, I kind of, of wanted to uh, learn how to be a bartender mm-hmm. there. Okay, uh, but it was pretty intense, and I have a, a really hard time hearing, unfortunately. So I was just terrible. I'd be leaning over the bar like, "What? What?" Yeah, yeah. And they're like, "That's not very elegant. We're, we're going to put you." <laughs> yeah. So great at maitre d. Yeah, <laughs> I could see that. So. Um, you work there, you're in school. Um, did they have like like a broadcast studio? Were you doing work? Were they, like, did you do internships? Like, were you actually getting time in front of the microphone or on camera? What was it? Yeah, we had a like full news station. Um, so a couple, we had a few fun breaking news stories that happened while I was in school that got picked up. Okay. Um, yeah, and I interned at local newspapers. I actually interned at a court 
Um, Because when I was taking political science, I started getting really interested in the justice system and how it worked. So I interned a whole summer for a judge just to learn about it. A judge in Texas. That must have been an interesting summer. Judge Bonnie Clark. Oh, she won. Oh, cool. Um, But yeah, so I I got a lot of variety of um, exposure through working and internships and stuff like that. Okay. Graduate. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you stay in Texas? You hightail it out of there. Um, no, I, I thought I was going to hightail out of it. I almost went to law school. Um, oh, I'm glad you didn't make that mistake. Because <laughs> the, the starting salaries in broadcast journalism were just, I couldn't I pay my student loans and my rent. There would be no way. So I ended up going into marketing. Um, I worked at the Pro Museum of Nature and Science when they opened it down there as their um, marketing manager. And it was a fantastic, fantastic first job. I'm like so thankful. Um, met so many people, interfaced with the media, learned copywriting, got to work in science, which I've always been passionate about. Um, so yeah, that's it was totally different than journalism, but um, yeah, very lucky. That's cool. And how long did you work there? Um, I worked there until 2016, so I guess like three or four years, mm-hmm. um, and then was ready to get back to the East Coast. So came up here and started working at WNYC. Oh, okay. Yeah. And what did you do at WNYC? I was the director. By the time I left, I was the director of audience development and social media. Um, but yeah, so doing all, launching a lot of podcasts. We like got to work on fun projects like Two Dope Queens, Freakonomics. Oh, Two Dope. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, Radio Lab, all of those, um, helping them kind of get more audience, launch things like that. Snap Judgment. That was like, oh, so cool. Um, so yeah, but. After a while, helping other people, watching them grow, watching their projects take off, I was like, I, yeah, I want to, I've wanted to be a writer. Like, that's what I wanted to do. And I paid off my student loans while I was at WNYC. So it kind of opens up your, oh, good on you. Um, your, yeah, potential. Yeah, once your student loans are paid off, then you, you're like, you're free. Yeah. You're not shackled. That's exactly how I felt. It's so funny. I literally felt exactly like that. I was like, wow, now I can do anything. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what did you do? So it, it was fortuitous because at the same time I won the gold medal at the National Homebrew Competition. In so we, so now we got to back up. So yeah. All right. When did you start homebrewing? <laughs> um, <clears throat> you know, I started uh, just out of college, just at like the kits you could get from Bed Bath and Beyond, like nothing fancy, um, but got really into it. And I didn't enter any competitions till I got up here to New York. I was brewing on this like countertop device called a Pico Brew. Um, but yeah, it's I, I've always been really into replicating things. So whether it's baking, beer, brewing beer, I was trying to like replicate my favorite beers, commercial beers. Um, and people just said, you you got to enter them. You've got to try it out. So. So what were some of your favorite commercial beers at this time? Because. Do you know Duval? It's a Belgian golden strong. Yes, I do know Duval. Yeah. I mean, it's not too different from this, this Cava in it some is, ways. It is a, um, it's one of the world's great beers. Yeah. And that was like, I was very, I'm still working on that one because. It's like eight, if, you know, it's eight percent finish is very dry, mm-hmm. and they use like uh, some like glucoamylase and things like that to really get it super dry. And at a home scale, it's a little more difficult than commercial scale. But yeah, um, Saison Dupont was another one for me that I loved. Another Belgian beer. Um, I, growing up in Philly, like Hop Devil and uh, Golden Monkey, things like that from Victory. So I've always had yeah more of a, a tune toward yeast forward beers. So more Belgian. German wheat beers, English beers, things like that, more than the IPA stuff. Yeah. So 
you, you're trying to recreate that. Anything else you, you uh, worked on? So you did, you tried Duvel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, Cezanne Dupont was definitely an inspiration. I ended up winning in the Cezanne, the uh, And the Cezanne Dupont, category. for you guys who don't know, I mean, that that comes in a, you know, they it, they have a 750 bottle. It has a, yeah, it's like this it has bottle. a cork. Yeah. Um, it's, it's legit. And I got into wine through, through beers. That was my background. I love it. Yeah. Because I drank beer. I was, you know, what you do when you're young. Yeah. And I love like becoming a Cicerone and stuff. I love um, the idea of like elevating. It's like one of the most consumed beverages, I think, other than tea, right? In the world. Um, Like elevating kind of what everyone's familiar with uh, and just saying this can be interesting too. It's Uh, Miller Lite, but Miller Lite's a very well made American Pilsner, you know? So. Um, yes, that's yes for what <laughs> it can, is. You can appreciate it for what it is, it right? Is, it's beer flavored beer. Yes, but that's hard to make if, at a homebrew scale. I can tell you that. Um. Well, I, well, I, yeah. I mean, well, first of all, it's, uh, the cleanliness just is off the chain to mm-hmm. do that. You know, sterilization and stuff like that. Yeah. Um. So you're brewing, and you know, you 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 have this palate. Um. This started in college? Like you started tasting these beers in college? Yes, we had um You weren't just drinking beer. down there drinking Shiner Bach? No, so I was lucky. I mean, I guess like I need to like write Tim a letter or something because they served Rar and Sons at Lonesome Dove, which mm-hmm. was our local brewery. Mm-hmm. And they used to brew beer with like corn and they had this red ale that was just very different than the frat party beer. Yeah, used to. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, everybody who's listening to this probably has in their head, huh. you're in Texas, just Big hunks of meat and yeah, <laughs> and like you know, uh, Shiner Bach or what's the other? What's the other one? What's the uh, Lone Star? Oh, Lone Star! Yeah, definitely. Yeah, just pounding Lone Star and <laughs> boots and cowboy I mean, boots. Shiner and, uh, Bach is quite like a uh, complex compared to a typical. Oh yeah, for sure. No, yeah. that, that was that was that that was a landmark beer when it came out. Uh, Shiner Light Blonde was like my go-to in college, so which is more expensive than the the frat the frat party stuff, but. Still get it at a, a grocery store and stuff like that. And yeah, big fan. H-E-B's. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you're brewing at home. Mm-hmm. Um, when did you decide to become a Chicharone? And we're going to talk about it. Yeah. So yeah, when I uh, when I won the gold, I got a lot of incoming interest. Okay, you, got, you won the gold. What beer yes. was that for? Uh, a French Saison. So okay. it's actually a beer style I'd never gotten to taste. Thierry is really the brewery that... Uh, popularized that beer in Europe. Um, but yeah, I it was super, super dry. French style is bone dry. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, It was very similar to a Duval without some of that Belgian yeast character. No apple, no on the nose, things like that. Um, but yeah, I, it's like 5,000 entries, I think, in the homebrew competition. So wow. I came out of nowhere and I was a young at the time girl. <laughs> um, and so people were just like, who is this? Like, so Cicerone reached out to me. And um, that's also when I started writing freelance. I started writing a homebrew column for Vine Pairs, wrote some stuff for food and wine and stuff like that. So it kind of opened up a side door for me to get out of marketing and get into the journalism I wanted to. So my really good friend is Augie Carton mm-hmm. of Carton Brewery. Oh, uh, and oatmeal and stout, right? Is that it, their famous? Well, his famous is Boat, which is a session ale. Oh, okay. Like it's like a four point eight. I can on, picture on, like on the tap. orange, yeah, the orange yeah, but, yeah, but yeah, but, yeah, but that that's one all orange clouds, which he does. Yeah. He does a bunch of one offs. Augie's really well known in the, in the craft beer world. Yeah, he has a podcast with John Hall oh, okay. called "Steal This Beer." Uh huh. <clears throat> um. And so we were just talking, we had this conversation the other day um, about, it's chit, it's chit, it's an Italian word. Yes. 
it's an Italian word. I'm not, and he's like, I'm not going to say it wrong just because in America they they oh, said it wrong. So it's an Italian word. Yes, it well, is. It, no, it's an Italian word. I know, but like, think about. I'm trying to think of other things that we like Americanized. Okay, so like, so so like, and so then and the other thing was like, it's um, is it a is it a GIF or it's a GIF, right? Yeah. Well, the guy who invented it called it GIFs. You can call it, but like, yeah. But this literally is the Italian word for beer. You can't. Okay, but what about when people say ricotta? Don't you? Aren't you kind of like okay? It's ricotta. We're in America. Well, you know, listen, or I like lived... Gouda and Howda. I'm always like, come on, yeah, come on, don't listen, try to be elitist. You know what's so funny? Um. You're fancier than that. I don't know anybody says how to, but I grew up around a lot of Italians and it's ricot, ricot. Yeah, okay. You know, I mean, yeah. so I, I will defer on that, but but it's also a very New Jersey yeah. dialect. Mm-hmm. Pretty far removed from the homeland. I guess I'm thinking of Giada on Food Network. Oh, well, we'll you know. say like, oh, today we're going to make pasta with mozzarella. And you're like, <laughs> okay, girly. Like, I love it, but like, you well, know. I mean, and it's like, it's like a, a gabagool. Yeah. Uh, moots. I mean, it, it depends on where people are like, are you from Providence, Rhode Island or New Haven, Connecticut? Are you from yeah. – uh, but anyway, so I, literally when you said it, it was like that. This was a conversation we had the other day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I read – because he gave me a copy recently. Um, was it a complete book of beer or whatever? Josh Bernstein's yeah. book or John's book? Yeah. Okay. And I also read John's book too. John, yeah, you know, John's John's book's next to mine a lot on bookshelves. Yeah, yeah. John's stories. book is um, <clears throat> like I I love uh, the first one because if you I mean it opened up fermentation for me. It it gave me a deeper and I have tons of winemaker friends, but mm-hmm. like it 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 really opened up fermentation and and what I would say would be one of my issues with natural wine mm-hmm. spontaneous fermentation works in beer it's it's like it works in beer because it, it ends up being sour and, and like you know what i mean yeah. like and it made sense there yeah and you know i didn't know like you know talking about bread of my season like oh, i mean like so i wrote a great i shouldn't say i wrote a great piece but i wrote a really interesting piece yeah. for wine enthusiasts about um in california a lot of winemakers are talking with the great spontaneous beer makers exactly. for guidance on making natural wine. And there is a hundred percent Britannomyces beer that or wine, sorry, that is fantastic that she made in cl- a collaboration with Russian River. And I should have brought that for us to drink. It's crazy, but a hundred percent Britannomyces is very different than natural fermentation. Well yeah, no, exactly. Cause cause then, then you're like, this is bready versus yeah. versus Using it, that muddiness. Yeah, of, yeah, yeah. Versus using it specifically, mm-hmm. right? And even when people and and you know, like when people are crafting, like Russian River crafts crazy sours that don't leave California that yeah. that aren't elevage for like you know three years. I mean, like yeah. it's like you know, and I was like, wow. But that's like how I got into wine was through mm-hmm. like my gateway was lambics actually. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Lindemans. Love. Love. Oh, the, yeah. the, you know, the frambois. Have you had your Cantillon? If you're a Lambic guy. No. Oh, now I'm thinking of all the things I should have brought. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> next time. What did we have yesterday? Oh, we had some. We had some crazy. I was at the brewery, Carton Brewery, and uh, they we just had released a or we had released a collab with Icarus, which is a small brewery down Lakewood, and Icarus is all. 
they're in that hazy IPA and it's fine, you know, mm-hmm. all percent. But like, so we did a collab. But he broke out a bottle of something. It was it was aged. It was six years. I I can't remember, but it was bourbon barrel aged. Oh wait, it was called the brewery. It's by the brewery. Oh, it was, I was the, just it there. was the brewery eighteen month. Okay, because you know they did the six, twelve, eighteen, yeah. twenty four. So we had the eighteen month. Mm-hmm. It was a twenty eighteen, eighteen month that he yeah. had in his cellar, and 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 the complexity, mm-hmm. you know. We, we were talking, going back to what you said, like Miller Lite, whatever, right? Like that's like 99% of the people who drink beer are drinking, as John Hochul's beer-flavored beer. Mm-hmm. You're drinking your Miller Lights, Budweiser's. But yeah, what do you think about it? As a home brewer, and I've heard this from other brewers that have been hanging out in the community lately, like there's nothing better than like trying to either brew in a great Pilsner or a great lager. Just a freaking clean beer, how yeah. hard it is. Yeah, it's very hard. Takes too long. I don't like lagering. The thing about saison yeast is you can like bust through a fermentation. It it ferments very hot, so you can bust through fermentation in like two days. Get in a (laughs) bottle. I like. Um, But yeah, I. uh, That's something. Going back to what you were saying about like that book opening up fermentation to you. When Mm. I started reporting on wine more and talking to winemakers, it's amazing how. In the beer world, when we ferment, we pick our yeast strain. Mm-hmm. We know exactly what flavors at what temperatures mm-hmm. it will throw. Mm-hmm. Wine is so much more like romantic. Like I, I was shocked. Like just even even some of the bigger winemakers, the way that they'll say, "Well, it's what's on the grapes." Maybe I'll pitch a little commercial yeast, but they're not looking like, "Oh, this tosses a lot of ethyl hexanoate, so I'm going to pick this yeast strain." Um, I thought that was so interesting because spirits, same thing. They all just kind of use like a workhorse strain. And so much flavor comes from the yeast. So much flavor comes from fermentation that we don't think about necessarily. Yeah. And, you know. Cheese fermentation, same thing. Pick your yeast strain for your cheese, you know. Well, yeah. I mean, I think, I don't know. Like you almost have, like you're going for a desired result, right? So like Mm -hmm. I think with wine, and then there's a question of beer terroir, right? That's a whole other thing, Mm -hmm. which is wonderful. We can talk about that. Yeah. but the big thing in wine is is the terroir, right? Like, it's, it, where is it grown? Like, so Cabernet grown in on the left bank of Bordeaux is going to be different from Cabernet grown in Napa Valley. It's going to be mm-hmm. different from Cabernet grown in the Mall Valley in Chile, or you know, mm-hmm. or so. So I think that's a lot of the conversation there. Mm-hmm. Like, it's going to express where it's from because of the soil it's grown in, versus like, yeah, versus like, I want this to do this, and I know this yeast does that. Right. Well, I think because we use such a commodity product in beer, like malt being the base, mm-hmm. which is grown as a commodity not to be super flavor forward. Now, all of these like native malts and stuff, people who are doing um, like estate beers where they grow the malt, they use mm-hmm. the wild yeast, that malt gives has flavor. And then you're getting Taiwan. You don't want, you know, right. maybe the yeast to take over at commercial yeast. Um, but yeah, I think it's just different the way that we think of creating flavor as a brewer um, compared to, yeah, wine. Like you're expressing that sense of place. You want it to taste like your own estate. You're not trying to maybe um, achieve an ideal the way that like we have the ideal beer style and you're trying to recreate that a lot. Like even the way we judge beer in competitions, it's like judged against commercial styles. A Belgian beer will be judged against Chimay. Mm-hmm. Wine, it's like we're looking for – or what I've seen, I've never actually judged a wine competition, but people I've talked to, more like flawlessness and like interesting and complexity than it is like we're going, like you said, to the ultimate Cabernet. We're judging us against the yeah, no, wine Cabernet. <clears throat> I don't think wine gets <clears throat> judged. It's like nobody goes per se. Yeah. Goes, all right, 
1945 Mouton Rothschild, 100 point wine. Everybody, every every Cabernet Sauvignon is judged need, needs to be judged. It's right. not. It's a little bit different from that. Yeah, um, exactly. Versus that's. I was shocked when a beer was like, okay, how does this hold up to this commercial? I think it does uh, the consumer such a disservice. It's so silly. Yeah. If you don't like Cezanne Dupont, why would every Cezanne be judged against it? You know. Yeah, but if you don't like Cezanne Dupont, you probably don't like Cezanne. No, and that's not true. Really? Cezanne, I mean, French Cezanne. Oh, I'm just kicking things. Um, <laughs> kicking my tea over. Uh, French Cezanne is so different than Cezanne Dupont, but it is judged as a Cezanne, which Got people, it. yeah, I don't know. I'm getting passionate here. <laughs> no, this is, what, this is why we're here. Um, but yeah, I think so. I think it does the consumer a disservice because if they don't have the platonic ideal of like a Kolsch in Clone Valley, can we not just say this is a really good beer and it it is really drinkable and enjoyable and you'll like it if you like grainy malt forward beers? Like, why does it have to be like the Kolsch's from Germany? I don't get it. <laughs> I have to like Kolsch's. It does, I mean, Carton does a lot of stuff with Kolsch's. It's, I like Kolsch. And I like just a Kolsch yeah. in the summer. Spring's just so crushable. Yeah. Nice fast fermenter too. Yeah. We love it, it. Yeah. You're all about the fast <laughs> fermentation. When it's, when it's sitting in your closet. Yeah. Um. <laughs> well, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> Try to move through it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, when did the the pursuit of your chicharroni uh, yeah. education begin? I'm like, I'm gonna keep saying chicharron. Um, you keep so saying yeah, no, it's perfect. Say I I took it like right away after. Well, so I took what's it called, certified beer server. <laughs> on like a bet that I could do better than someone who was telling me that he knew more about beer than me. And we like took it right there. You can take it online. And I like <laughs> got almost a hundred on it. I was like, shut up. Um, but then after I won that, they, they reached out to me. I went to like the Cicerone happy hour at uh, NHC when I won and like talked to them, took the test pretty quickly after to get my certified, got my advance two years later. No, a year and a half later, um, passed it on the first time. And then I did go for master and did not pass it. Um, really intense test i got an 83 and you have to have an 85 to pass and it, like four people got 83s with me so i guess we have a camera here like side eye um <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i i think that pursuit taught me like that's why i got my aroxa certification as a taster and it taught me so much about flavor and chemistry that rather than go for master again i decided i wanted to learn about spirits i got my w set i got my certified cider professional took a cheese tasting course in England. Um, so it really opened me up. I'm so thankful for that because it opened me up to this world of flavor generally. And I think a lot of people don't think of it holistically. Like to your point, beer brought you to wine. I think wine can bring people to spirits. Wine can bring people to cheese. Chocolate can bring people to beer. All these flavors are like the same. They're made chemically exactly the same. So it's just, I think people don't think of it holistically. So that's kind of where I turned my pursuit. And then now we have a book about it. <laughs> yeah. So um, this is probably a good time to take a break because mm. um, we do have to get into the book, but we're not done with uh, how you got to the book. So uh, we'll be right back with more Mandy. Okay, it's obvious that I love Grenache, but I think by now you guys also know that I just love wine. And that's why... On Saturday, November 4th, we are hosting a not just Grenache tasting in association with Grenache Fest. Once again, it'll be held at the Motor Co. in downtown Walla Walla. And tickets are just $35 per person. And we will be featuring wines from some of the top producers in the Walla Walla region. 
Go to GrenacheFest.com to purchase your tickets today. Okay, we're back. So I love that your passion's coming out. That's so awesome. <laughs> and so, you know, they've documented, there's movies about it, Psalm mm-hmm. series about what it takes to become a master of Somalia. Mm-hmm. Um, and all the rigorous tasting and now the degree for the master of Cicerone, is that more akin to a master of wine or a master of sommelier? It's an interesting blend. So I think when you think of master of wine, I was joking. One of my friends just got his master psalm. So congratulations to Jonathan. But we were saying people who have their master of wine could go and make wine. Where Psalms are very um, service focused. They know the entire history of regions and things like well, that. Well, Raj Parr would disagree with you, but I see okay. your point. Well, no, so it, I'm no, not in it like No, no, no. But, but uh, to your point, yes, that's that's a thing. There's mm-hmm. people who can nail the tasting, but they don't like people. So they can't get the hospitality insurance part right. Right. Because it it, it is – and I'm going to say this, and I don't give a f- – who does – and <laughs> Raj Parr said this. It's so – if you have not sold wine mm-hmm. on the floor of a restaurant, you're not a sommelier. Oh, I hate that. I know people hate that. <laughs> But but as someone who went to law school, graduated from law school, mm-hmm. didn't pass the bar, people, people you're like, I'm not a lawyer. I have a JD. Yeah. You might have your master's. You might have what your WSET one certified. Mm-hmm. But if you have not the the we, I'm I'm old. I'm old. I'm mm-hmm. Always my old crotch old man. Yeah. <laughs> the job of Somalia was selling is selling historic selling wine on Florida. I get it. But but mm-hmm. you could say I have this education. But some sell wine on the floor of fucking restaurants. Mm-hmm. And then if you want to leave and go to other things, that's great. You can parlay your degree because people can use my – I know so many JDs end up becoming C- – like there's mm-hmm. – CPAs become CEOs. Mm-hmm. But they're not a fucking CPA when they're the C- CEO. And and you're a flavor. So now I'm making this, I'm yeah. making some serious thing. Nothing yeah. wrong with having the degree. Nothing wrong yeah. with parlaying the degree. Mm-hmm. But can we get back to – like like – it just feels a little gatekeepy to me. To, it's not gatekeepy. I know, but they want to hire hot people to sell wine on the floor. So if you're not hot and you are trying to get a job selling, but all you can do is work at a wine shop or work in education, you you're disqualified from being a song. No, I didn't say that. No, I didn't say that. It you sounds just, like it sounds no. like you are. I said if you didn't sell wine on the floor of a restaurant. Well, so if you can't get a job selling wine on the floor of a restaurant. Well, and that's another thing too that I'm gonna that I I've been saying since I started this podcast. Like you, you love movies like Psalm, but like there's only so many. It's like the NBA, right? There's yeah. only so many places that have a master Psalm, yeah. right? So like it's super competitive. Totally. Right. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm again, I'm not mad if you get to serve it and you go do something like, but don't say you're a Psalm. Just say I got my, you know, like, like, like I'm almost embarrassed that I have a law degree, right? Like people, yeah. are like, <laughs> my friend's like, oh, you're a lawyer. I'm like, I have to tell you, I'm not a lawyer. Yeah. I don't practice law. Mm-hmm. If you, if you're, listen, if you're. That let's go. That goes to the PhD versus MD. Like, yeah, you know, you're like you're not a doctor. You have an academic degree. Like, you know, there's all these. But does my dad not deserve to go by doctor? Oh, your dad definitely deserves. Because... No, I think I think a PhD deserves to go by doctor. Well, so there you go. But you never cut but, anyone open. Yeah, exactly. But 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 your dad would never say. He if someone said, "Oh, what, what's your practice?" He wouldn't be like. Oh, he, he would tell them. Yeah. He, would, he wouldn't be like, oh, he wouldn't be like, you know, I cut people. You know what I mean? But he I think, would, song, I think someone, okay, okay, I get, I get what you're saying now. I think someone who has their psalm at any level, advanced psalm, whatever, um, they might not lead with, I'm a psalm like a. Right. 
I get what you're saying. Yeah. But I think you can still hold the certification. I just no, think... No, I'm not saying... Yeah, you, you can hold force, the certification. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I just think forcing people to have certain career experience to hold the title. Oh, ah, that's the world. Like, I mean... I mean... Uh, I, mean mm, I just think there's a lot of things okay, that so you can't if, work if, in service if, for if, certain reasons. I understand that, too. But if, if I write in my journal, am I an author? You're a writer? Hell yeah. No, I said am I an author? Author of yeah, I think so. Screw it. I mean, you can be an author any anyway. There's plenty of people who you're a writer. There's lots of people who are writers. I know, but I like I met someone recently who was like, oh yeah, I had this book that came out. And she's like, I have a book, and I was like, oh my gosh. And then it's like her self published collection know. of family. And then, exactly. And, a, and, then, and then, then you're like, oh, I'm not looking down on you. Like, yeah. You're totally an author. No, you have a book. Whatever. No, listen, it takes a lot to self publish a book. I mean, even yeah. most published books sell sell. It's so hard to sell a thousand copies of a book. People don't even realize. She's like, not for not me. Not that hard. <laughs> I know I'm lots of authors. Everyone, too. please it, buy this it, book. It, I'm just it, kidding. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I digress. <laughs> uh, thank you for indulging me. I'm forgetting we have our microphones in front of us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Getting passionate. Um, so, uh, Aroxa, A R Aroxa, Aroxa. Mm-hmm. What what is that organization? Because I've never heard of that. So they certify tasters. A lot of them are for quality assurance. So, okay. Um, even things like outside of the beer industry, if sure. you're on a tasting panel at a professional, um, they also have things like dairy run through their their QC panelists and things to make sure it's all on. So it's really getting certified on individual compounds. So being able to smell ethyl butyrate in a mixture of other um, things, being able to smell like H2S, pretty easy one. But like, so that certification is really getting certified to taste I believe my certification was 42 or it might have been more um, compounds. Mm. And if you pass being able to taste them like right below threshold or at threshold, um, you get to say you're a certified taster. It's freaking crazy. And then so um, you said you got to open up the spirit. So what was that like to complete um, the uh the spirit certification with the WSET. I'm so happy that I came to it from beer because to, to your point, I think I still see fermentation is very important in spirits and it's a little bit glossed over um, in their education. But just because they've, the spirits world is so vast, you're learning everything from rum to tequila to cognac to Armagnac, you know, um, I can't even everything, vodka. Uh, so they, they kind of breeze over that. But I felt like it helped me just understand the production a lot easier and kind of, yeah, move through that. And the same thing with tasting, like once you've taken these tasting exams and you learn how to study for them and how to taste for them, it's um a little more achievable, I guess you could say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I love self-study programs. So I love, I think WSET's great. Like it's, you have your classes, but you can self-study, you can supplement it. They give you ideas of what to supplement with so you can learn in your own way. Um, I think some of the ones that make you go to a class and then you just like pass a test, I don't know that you, uh, maintain the knowledge as much. So. Yeah. I, 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 that makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Cause all learning is self-learning and, and, and you really need to be directed if you really want to master a subject. So I think to yeah. your point, like if they're giving you like some cues and, but you can go down the rabbit hole, mm-hmm. you want to go down. All right. So, um, so you mentioned you wrote your first piece was for Vine Pair. Yeah, Vine Pair. I was their uh, homebrew columnist. Kat, okay. Kat Walensky saw me win that award and they were like, we have a lot more interest. And this was, like I said, back in 2016 when homebrewing was a little bigger. Um, I feel like the hobby's not expanding the way it used to be. Um, so, yeah, we started doing that like right away. Um, 
What was your first article? You remember what your first article was about? I think my first, <laughs> I think my first one was actually about like five things, like a national homebrew gold medalist notes or something like very okay. like listicle like <laughs> right, personal right, right. experience. Yeah. Because yeah. 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 um, that's what they had like asked for. But um, no, I got really like right away into like kind of recipe forward stuff, how to build out your kit cheap, like in a way that's affordable and mm-hmm. then what to upgrade first. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of. I got to talk to people about like fun equipment and stuff. I got to contact a lot of other um, gold medalists and talk to them. So it was a, it was a fun column. And um, then you also, what was it for food and wine? Yeah, that, that I did like a lot of pairing work for them and stuff like that. But I think um, I got more into the in-depth reporting, writing things like, you know, a couple thousand words for like good beer hunting, wine enthusiasts, mm-hmm. things like that pretty quickly. Um I find that kind of like more in-depth reporting a little bit more uh, exciting than the kind of like service journalism, like what is an IPA or like five beers to have with brunch and that kind of stuff. So, um, and it also depends your editors move around, like all the publications change. So, yeah. And so, I just, just, yeah, I came back. Gold medal. So how many, Mm -hmm. like a lot of uh, women win gold medals in the homebrew, uh... no, the year the year I won for Zazon, I believe I was the only one. They don't do a great job keeping track of like self reporting gender and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I won again for my Imperial Stout, um, but that year I did see a couple other women. It was like the virtual um, awards during the pandemic, mm-hmm. um, but I did see some other women on the list that year. So um, it's it doesn't happen often enough, uh, but it's happening more. I think. I think people look at beer and they still say, like, oh, that's such a man's profession. But there's like a ton of really smart, really great brewing women. You're the women. third woman I know who's a chicharroni. There you go. So, I mean, I, I, but um, I digress. Um, <laughs> Every time I feel, you said like, what's your least favorite sound earlier? It's like, now that is yeah, hearing you say chicharroni. <laughs> Good. Uh, gonna, you're going to, you're going to start saying it. She's going to start saying it. It's going to get in there. I'm playing. I'm gonna see it. I'm, this is like inception. You're gonna, yeah. <laughs> we'll see. I, I mean, the more I like go down this path, I feel like the, the less I use that title. Um, exactly. But, yeah. Right. Cause you're an author now. Um, yeah. and so, Oh, Imperial Stout. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your Imperial Stout, because you didn't tell me you won twice. Yeah. Um, English, it's definitely based more in, like, the English ideal of a stout. So it has, like, those big, um, like, dark cherry, dark cola aromas from the yeast on the nose. It's um, no, no wood or anything like that. It came in just under 10%, I believe. Um, yeah, a couple people have made the recipe and told me it's great. So that's exciting. But uh, yeah, totally different category. I had been entering my attempted Duval clones for years. I got a silver one year for it um, and finally switched it up and was like, I'm going to focus on a different style. And then, yeah, so I'm not a one trick pony. It doesn't, it's not just Belgian uh, beers for me. I can, anything, yeah, more yeast focused. Because uh, now, yeah, I've been brewing for, I don't know, close to 10 years now, which is mm. crazy. Wow. Yeah. Good on you. Um, so you're doing all this stuff, you're writing, you're tasting, you're savoring, um, the book, mm-hmm. how to taste. Well, what, what, what do you mean how to taste? I just put it in my mouth. I chew, <laughs> I swallow. What do you mean how to taste? Yeah. I mean, 
so it came out of I was teaching a lot of blind tasting classes um, before the pandemic, as well as just a lot of guided tastings. Um, and obviously all of that work shut down um, during the pandemic. So chapter four is literally a tasting method walking you through everything from how to set up, uh, see, sniff, sip. Uh, I'm trying to think there's seven S's, um, swirl, samples, spit, uh, sit and synthesize, I believe are all of them. Um, so it really walks you through like when we're introducing something to our senses, especially taste you want to remember or really savor how, how do you do that? And talking to a lot of scientists and tasting professionals, but it also goes through just why, why we taste things differently individually. Like our genes will completely taste, change how we mm-hmm. taste this wine. And it's not a good or bad thing. Like I always say, I think it's about 30% of people are blind to beta ionone, which is the smell of violets. You can totally live your whole life happily not smelling violets. Not if you like, um, not if you like <laughs> aviations. Good, yeah, or aviations or good, good right bank uh, uh, Bordeaux. Well, so there you go. And, and it doesn't mean you're an inferior taster or it just, I think it, when I started learning about how our genetics kind of unwind our sense of taste, it really changed the way I look at things like writing tasting notes, telling people in a guided tasting what they taste. Um, because, yeah, you could, like I said, live your whole life happily. You would just taste Bordeaux a little differently. You would taste uh, creme de violet a little differently. It's still – it totally, like, makes sense. I don't know. So it's just like when you're trying to tell someone, no, you taste this. This tastes of flowers to you. Well, maybe it doesn't, and maybe we should talk about our experiences of taste a little differently. So that's in there too, um, taste and memory. I really said after I wrote it, I should have called it probably why to taste, but that's even a crazier title. So, um. <laughs> No, how to taste is good. It's a great yeah. book. I was just busting your chops. Um, <laughs> but to your point, I had a MW on, and she said the same thing. She said one of, one of the problems, challenges with wine critics is, is your palate aligned with them? I have a whole chapter on judging in there for exactly this. And and this is where I take issue with people saying, oh, Parker changed wine. No, Parker changed wine for people whose palate were aligned with his. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and kind of save wine. Wine wasn't doing, you know what I mean, in one, in one level. Like wine yeah. was hurting. But if you don't like his wines, don't drink them. And I tell people right, – so there's lots of critics, right? So mm-hmm. I, I know from this critic – if this critic gave it a uh, – once this critic gave it a 93 and someone gave it a 97, mm-hmm. and those are equivalent scores mm-hmm. based on their palate. Because mm-hmm. – but what this MW said is like, yes, our DNA, we 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 take that out of so many things, equation out of the equation, so many things, right? Mm-hmm. Because my saliva – because of my DNA, my saliva, everything is different in my mouth. Absolutely. Than it is in your mouth. Mm-hmm. And I like that. Like whenever people – you know, like, oh, what's in this wine? Like, I'll tell I'll tell people what I get out of the wine, mm-hmm. but I'm like, what do you get out of it, right? And there's right. no wrong answer, right? Right. And that's like um, I have a chapter on judging in there because I think people see these gold medals on bottles of wine. And I want people to know. So sometimes when we're judging, I judge more spirits and beer, but like they'll even tell you, take in the shape of the bottle as part of your critique. Like take in the marketing. That's part part of the score. So something that you are tasting blind and something that you're taking in the shape of the bottle or the appearance is going to be two totally different scores, but they all to a consumer have a gold medal on them and they're sitting on the shelf and it says gold medal wine. And you're like, oh, okay. So I think it's important that people understand, yeah, what goes into judging, to your point, calibrating. Basically, whoever's the head of your judging panel, you're calibrating to that pal- palette. They'll throw out a score if they think it's way off you know yeah um 
I just don't think it's a nice peek behind the curtain to people. It's just an introductory. It's just an introduction to it. No, right? it's, it's a good a chapter, peek. But... I, think, I think people need to see that. And, and yeah. so there's nothing. And I, I've always said what. Okay, so you're a certified taster. There, mm. there is, there's a lot of value in your opinion. However, you're not saying it's the gospel. You're just mm-hmm. you're encouraging people to taste stuff for themselves. Is the impression I get? Absolutely. And I think just you know, I I always say like, what do we do more than like walk? or and breathe or less than you know the next next thing is eating and we do it all the time we're not even paying attention to what mm-hmm. we're tasting and it's just an opportunity to kind of expand your experience of life a little bit just by focusing on flavor what does it taste like what does it remind you of that kind of stuff i think you can have a much richer experience of your whole life um rather than just throwing back another uh mcdouble somewhere and <laughs> you'd be surprised how different different countries mcdonald's are you know oh no no i I have a daughter who's Irish. It's completely different going to McDonald's now. Yeah. Food's actually real food. In New Zealand, they put beets on one of their burgers, which sounds crazy. Great. (laughs) God, those freaking Kiwis. Beets on a burger. Yeah, putting putting an egg on everything. I was like, I love it. I love McDonald's here. Stroopwaffle McFlurry. It doesn't get better than that. I could see that being tasty. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, the Stroopwaffle you get on the airplane... It's not the best, but yeah. but you do you do that, but you're like, ah, something about this. Yeah. So it's that that crunch and that caramel. Oh my god. Well, and there's a there's a chapter about taste and travel too, because you know airplanes are just terrible for tasting anything. If you saved your stroop waffle and ate it on the ground, it's totally different. I, I typically do save a lot of stuff. Yeah. Why is that? Talk to me about that. Why is it different on a plane? So first of all, it's so we don't realize it, but it's very loud on a plane. Oh, it's really loud. And um your nerve from your tongue runs through your inner ear. It's called the cord of tympani to your brain. So basically your all your taste signals are just being jostled like crazy by this noise constantly. So it makes um, sweetness and uh, saltiness harder to taste, mm. um, which is why people like typically like something like a tomato juice on a plane only because you all you're getting is the umami. You're not tasting a lot of the other flavor that's there. That is so um, true. Here's, here's what people drink on planes. Ginger tomato ale. juice and ginger ale. Yeah. <laughs> that sharpness yeah, that you might so not like true. on the ground but when you can barely taste anything you're like this actually so tastes fun. like something people, I'm, people do not like most restaurants don't even have ginger ale yeah exactly like on on a you know they'll have some for mixed drinks right mm-hmm. but like you know people don't go out and be like oh i'll have a ginger ale when they right. go to the regular pizza place right but on a plane everybody's like oh i just never uh i've only liked tomato juice if i run it through my own juicer and it's super fresh, <laughs> fresh you yeah know, and i Throw a little jalapeno, but like, but like, yeah, you're getting the texture of just like that pasteurized tomato juice. I know, just gross to me. And on planes too, the inside of your nose swells a lot, so you can't smell anything. And you know, eighty percent or more of what we consider flavor is from aroma. So mm-hmm. yeah, your palate's not getting a lot. Your nose is getting nothing, almost. So uh, um, what comes through very clearly still is umami, and then you get that ginger, that actual tactile. Um, feeling from the ginger so so how do you make the leap from you know uh like journalist mm-hmm. to author like writing a book because there's people who are journalists for four years and they write a book because it's it, that's a different animal yeah i'm i'm lucky to have worked on a couple books before especially uh Kristen tomlin's book uh uh, Hello Cookie Dough. She was the one who founded that raw cookie dough store. Okay. Dough. Um, so I co-wrote her cookbook with her and she's fantastic. So I learned a lot about 
publishing, although working on cookbooks is way different than just like a narrative book like this. Um, but yeah, I also can't, it was a perfect time to pitch this. It was right when everyone was very concerned about losing their taste and smell. Oh yeah. So it was, Schmoled. yeah. Yes. Um, perfect time to send out the proposal and, uh. Yeah, even though I started, I wrote almost the whole thing in 2021. It's just coming out. So that's publishing for you. How long did it take you to actually sit down and write it? I ended up writing it in about 10 months. Um, but like I said, a lot of it's based on previous experience, so like the syllabus that I had. I did talk to over 100 professional tasters for it, and I wanted them all to talk about the tasting method and make sure it jived with what they agreed would be a good method. Um and then you go through editing and going back and forth with your um, editor and things like that. So there was a lot more about taste and memory and taste and health and stuff that how to taste too. Well, <laughs> how to taste too. <laughs> how to uh, taste more tasting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how to taste some more. <laughs> yeah. So because I thought all that was like fascinating, but it was kind of getting away from the actual premise of like how to taste. So so you kind of went down this road. You started going down this road with. Mm -hmm. Like the plane, like it's so funny as I've gotten older, I'm way more sensitive. Like literally I'm on a plane. I'm like, it's so freaking loud. Like I can mm -hmm. just hear like the the thing, the wind outside and the, the engine outside and just, and every time a kid cries, it seems really loud. Or, yeah. And um, so yeah, let's talk a little about the science of this thing that, that mm -hmm. didn't make it in the book. Like, yeah, let's come on, geek out, nerd <laughs> out on us. Yeah, no, I mean, so, I mean, it's not just the plane, right? The sounds of a plane that affect, uh, like, also people who eat or drink something while listening to jazz tend to rate it higher and enjoy it more just because of the way it's kind of vibrating Shut that. Up. Whereas if you're introduced to a new food and you're listening to something very beat forward, a lot of the studies use hip hop music, but with a, like a lot of bass, a lot of like a pulsing beat. People tend to say, "Oh, I don't like this. This new sensation. It's not. I don't. It's not enjoyable." It's kind of like hip hop when it first came out. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, so it's just, it, and there's even like studies um, where they'll have someone listen to music, then make their own cocktail, and people who listen to sour music, which is very tonal, very you know, big leaps between notes, will make a more sour cocktail than someone who listened to classical and make something more sweet. So it's like all of our senses are coming together in a way that we don't even necessarily realize to affect what we're tasting before we ever taste it. You know, if you have a wine bar, don't play your music too loud. That's my advice. Oh, there you go. Um, <laughs> and if you're going to a wine bar, don't buy super expensive wine if it's super loud in there. You're just not going to get, like, the full experience. This is <laughs> gold. Yeah. Um, so going back to what you said, so what do you think about what, in your opinion mm – -hmm pros and cons of blind tasting only pros i i, I think okay. um so i talked to rick bayless in the book uh he was on top chef masters and had to do a really fun blind tasting but he even has everyone on his staff not just people behind the bar taste a white and a red in black glasses or with their eyes closed to be like you can't tell the difference like just to show people like i think it's it's really important to realize a lot of what we love about wine spirits anything is the story and that's fine it's 100 percent the story um, right and so it's not necessarily always paying for something that makes it taste better i think i love you can get them on amazon just like black wine glasses and put anything in them juices apple juice and orange juice you'd be surprised when people are like "Ooh, i i can't tell which one it is if you give it to them alone if they side by side you can usually tell but um it's amazing when we strip our senses away from everything and just focus on flavor. Um, 
how much you learn about what you like and what you don't like. I, to what we were talking about before, I, I always thought I hated Prosecco, but someone ordered for, for me once and was like, what do you think of this? Just try it. And I was like, oh, it's okay. It's like, it was an extra brute Prose- right, Prosecco, right, but right. you know, it's like you have these ideas and just try something blind. And the worst thing that happens is you don't like your sip and you get over it. Like, I just think there's no downside. Yeah. I dig that. Um, I don't think quizzing people is always great. Right. That's that, that might be like that. That's the issue with that. So, so my buddy Augie, he does this thing on this podcast, steal this mm-hmm. beer. Um, at the end, you know, the guest brings a beer, and they drink it out of black glasses. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. They've it. been, yeah, they've been doing this for years. Yeah, and. He just released a beer last month called Black Swan Event, mm-hmm. and it's a black IPA. Okay. Right? So if you have a glass, you pour it like, oh, my God, you think it's, it's going to taste like Guinness. Well, I have a story for you after this. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I knew you would. <laughs> um, but then you taste it. It's, it's just piney and resiny. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and if you do it in a black glass, it would be like, oh, that's uh, that's this so-and-so IPA, right? right. And, they, and they go, well, it is an IPA, but it's black IPA. And, like, it's so dark. So, yeah. And it was funny just hanging, getting to hang out with him again, um, really understanding, like, the same, like, at the end of the day, this is a great book. I was like, why? Because we're all, we're all, we're all different, yet we're all the fucking same. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and it's something to connect over without, yeah, overthinking it, I feel exactly. like. Exactly. Yeah. But like you said, like that stimulus, like like literally they do that, like he does it and he's got an incredible power and he still gets stumped from time to time, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Because So yeah, in my classes I teach, I do what I call the half blinds, where we pass out samples and half the people have either a blindfold or their eyes shut and the other half have them open. People with their eyes open write down their descriptions and then but my one people with their eyes shut say what they're tasting. And I usually do a short spear, which is has a little bit of a cocoa to it, but really just tastes like a pilsner. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they'll say things like cold, cereal, like cracker, and people who are writing things write coffee, chocolate, and it's just because of what they're seeing. Yeah. And then same thing with like I have this pink-ish colored beer, but it really just tastes sour. But people with their eyes open say raspberry, cherry, and other people will just say like lemon, yogurt, things like right. that. Because we're so like misled, and I think when you teach people that way, they get to look at their partner's paper and be like, "You wrote that down. Like that tasted nothing like that to me." It's a really eye-opening experience for people to let go of some of that visual stimulus. Um, I mean, that's what's so interesting about cocktails now, too. Yeah. If you make a cocktail pink, people are gonna. If you picture even in your head right now a pink cocktail and a blue cocktail, like maybe not blue, pink cocktail and a yellow cocktail. Which one do you think is sweeter? Well. So I happen to know some things, but most people think the 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 pink one's gonna be sweeter. Right. It's it's just overall it's the reason this ice cream scoop shops are painted pink. Like Ben and Jerry uses pink almost nowhere, but in their scoop shops, the logo's pink. It's a pink it's a pink scoop of ice cream. The uh, walls are pink. You're sampling your ice cream, it tastes sweeter. Freezer section, it's all blue and green. They're never gonna have pink on their branding. But you just can use these like visual cues to just all of a sudden you're in a sweet room. It's We're pink. all being manipulated. Yeah, Sprite cans. Do you know that story about Sprite cans? No. They put more yellow on the like Sprite logo and people rated it as like 70% more citrus flavor. Same exact uh, thing. Listen, <laughs> I I believe that, right? Yeah. I totally believe that. And and that's and I, when I talk to people about wine, I try and explain, I'm like, you know, like I'm like, okay, like I'm fortunate. I get to drink some really expensive wines because I'm 
is what I do. And some Campo Viejo. And some Campo Viejo. <laughs> I love a great affordable bottle of wine. Mm-hmm. I really do. Um, and this is drinking more like like a, a, a beer, a beer almost a saison. Like get the apple quality. Yeah, yeah. totally. It's, um, but like uh, sometimes you're like, I tell people, no, you get to, you got to get to know winemakers. You got to get to know vineyards mm-hmm. because the most dangerous spot in the world of wine is between twenty and fifty dollars in California. <laughs> Because you just slap a fucking good looking label on some shit. Maybe a medal if you're lucky. Exactly. <laughs> and people like people literally like that's one of the frustrations sometimes selling retail is like people are like, I just like the label. I'm like, Are you serious? That's not the way to pick your wine. <laughs> but if you're going to a party, I feel that sometimes you're like, I would love to bring this, but it's too like ugly to like say this is like a gift for you. That's so funny. Um no, definitely. And I think, you know, we're tricked all the time just even by like the weight of bottles. People will add extra glass just to make it feel heavier and oh, more yeah. expensive. And I'm I'm told not so not crazy. I'm on the wrong side of this one. I yeah. love a heavy bottle. I just do. It's oh just, no, you're naturally yeah, you do. Like you that's know, the, I do uh, love a heavy bottle. Like um so this can be interesting because all these people are pledging to lower the weight of the bottles and Yeah, like the telemont. Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna let you guys a little secret. That's not gonna stop global warming. <laughs> We need to do something a little different besides lower the weight of bottles. But if you want to feel better and virtue signal and have people yeah. buy your wine because your I, bottle's lighter, I think a out. great thing is getting rid of the gift boxes, especially around like champagne and stuff. Yeah, Those you know, are, yeah. I'm fine with that. But I agree. I think a heavier bottle. And it's interesting because it's so trendy to have those really light wine glasses now. But again and again, studies like will back up each other over and over that a heavier glass, people think what they're drinking tastes better. It's more expensive. Oh, I'm more a, I'm a, I need a light glass. I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm a... I have some glass now. Like I yeah. like went to a friend's house. She had a party, and all she had was like her grandmother's Waterford Crystal. And then like I don't oh, want this heavy ass. This is like, like a bowling ball. <laughs> you mean then the bulb? You can't really swirl. <laughs> yeah. No, I know. Yeah, these are great. But this is this is a shout out to Andrea Robinson. This is like an all purpose glass, you know. Mm-hmm. But I do have Zaltos, which. Well, I have Zalto because I broke like eight of them already. Because you can, you just look at it the wrong way, yeah. and it breaks. But I just like it's like it's whenever I was like it's just light as a feather. Yeah, there's I know you there's can't. nothing like it. But yeah. talk about that too. Talk because people I don't think people realize that the shape of your glass affects like talk about the pint how it's not really the ideal for beer. It's just because mm-hmm. you can stack it. Yeah, well, the nonic pint is definitely a yeah. – it was invented specifically to keep – it's called nonic for no nick, to keep it when it falls over from chipping. Um, but I, I talk about glassware pretty extensively in the book in mm-hmm. the like setting section because I think people – some people put too much weight on what a glass can do for you mm-hmm. and some, again, don't. I mean I say for beer, any glass, please just pour it into a glass. I don't care if it's a plastic cup. <laughs> At least you can smell it. You can get that flavor. But – um. A lot of like what we look for on any kind of glass, I mean, this is a perfect example, is you want a little bit of a tapered rim just to hold that aroma for you, hold that headspace kind of waiting for you there. This is nice. There's a really cool study that they used a sniffer cam and you can watch ethanol rays out of different glasses. In a martini glass, the ethanol is just all over the place. Oh, yeah. (laughs) A wine glass really does create a nice ring so you can put your nose into the center of that ring and get an ethanol free sniff, if you will. Um, but like the worst glass out there is a champagne flute. Oh, that's why the champagne flute is dead amongst um, – well, You should read some Instagram comments. On my- no. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say amongst real wine drinkers, it's yeah. dead. 
absolutely the, right? that little tulip flute that I yeah uses. no that's yeah. that like like literally i've seen memes where someone was coming with champagne with foods like no 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 yeah. we don't do that here well i mean imagine just pouring a glass of red wine in a champagne flute it'd be ridiculous right. but so, we, so many champagnes forget, are red okay like, because champagne is wine yeah it's just sparkling exactly from the champagne region Exactly. You know, and so, yeah, it's like a glass like this is great for it, a white wine glass. Yeah, and a, a coupe will make it go flat very quickly. Exactly. You know, it looks yeah. lovely. Yeah. But, you know, if you're into the whole Marie Antoinette thing, legend, yeah. you know, you get the coupe glass. But Well, actually, you're swirling. Have you ever – I'm sure you've done this before, but we can tell the people who are listening. Mm -hmm. So the last – like when you have a carbonated beverage like this and there's just like for me like a little bit left, yep. I do what's called a covered sniff. So you put your hand on. Oh, yeah. I've learned that from Kevin's Raley. Yeah. And if you swirl – this, I'm going to swirl all the carbonation out for like eight seconds. All the aroma is really filling that yeah, headspace. Yeah. It's, it's trapped in a glass. Yeah. And then you just align your hand with your nose before you take it off and then just do three short sniffs. Yeah. And that's, that's like a whole different. And then now the wine that's left there has no flavor, but <laughs> you get like so much more aroma. And talking to scientists about it, like those short sniffs are so important because um, you're not drying out your nasal cavity. That's the thing too. People are like, yeah, and it's terrible for you. Yeah, you need that delicious. It's funny to talk about while tasting, but like that mucus layer in there because it literally holds what's called OPBs, which are the odor binding proteins. Oh wait, OPBPs. Odor binding boogers. Proteins to like <laughs> bind the odors to your receptor so you can smell them at all. Like if you have a very wow. dry nasal cavity, you shouldn't be tasting. You gotta go get a humidifier in your face for a little bit. Um so all those long sniffs, you see people like Oh yeah. It's terrible for you. It's like yeah. the worst thing you could do. Yeah. Um but people We're just, doing it all wrong, everybody. We, so I, see, that's why how the, to taste there, how to smell. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> how to sniff. But I mean you said that I mean over eighty percent of what you you taste is olfactory. Right. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, it's it scary for people who were in the profession who got COVID and like, absolutely. I mean, that's just, that's devastating. Right. You know? Yeah. And it's terrifying because even when people kind of get things back, it seems that they're, it's, it's come back differently. Yeah. A lot of people, have you heard a lot of people say they can't smell like licorice, like a lot of fennel and things well, like that? Well, that, that sucks if you're in wine because so that's, yeah. that's in a lot of the, that's a, a marker of certain wines, right? right. Like, you, like the varietal. Typicity mm -hmm. requires to get anise, and if you can't get it, I mean that. I mean that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. If I couldn't stick my nose in and take three short sniffs, which I'll yeah. be doing from now, three, three one-second sniffs. Yeah, um, it it would dilute. So, like like you know, getting drunk is not necessarily fun once you're twenty-four. Yeah, well, that's what I, I always say. I'm like, <laughs> if you're just, if you're drinking without tasting, you're just might as well be taking shots. Yeah. Like, what's the point? Yeah. Um, so. But so, um, I might've asked this, but like, when, like, you've done all these things, but what, what, when did you become so obsessed with flavor? Uh, definitely, um, going for master cicerone. So we have okay. to know a lot of individual flavor compounds um and and define and and define flavor for people define flavor um i guess it's the people will say it's the combination of taste and smell but it is like our sensory input of something we are consuming from all five senses really the amalgamation of all five senses coming together to create a taste sensation um so yeah perceiving that flavor as much as we wish it wasn't, like our sight definitely affects that sound as we talked about both, you know, hearing things like. I that. mean, not, of course that makes sense. I mean, this, yeah. if you look at a skeleton, we're in, you know, 
it's all connected. There's nothing in there. There's like, like, yeah. like, like, like this is all connected. Right. Well, and it's amazing that long e- root ENT, ear, nose, and throat. Right. Like it's all connected. But like, till so you said, I'm like, oh, damn. Like it's so obvious mm-hmm. that, but we, I never, I mean, holy shit. And well, I've had issues in this area. Of, even temperature though, like the closer something is to our body temperature, the more easily we can taste sweetness and bitterness. Mm. So very, very cold. It's very hard to taste sweetness. Ice cream has to be flavored super, super sweet. That's why if you have melted ice cream, it's like so sweet. It's gross. And then coffee, very, very bitter at room temperature, but hot far away from your body temperature, not so much. Um, and so when you think about chilling something, what degree you chill it, if you like a wine, but only super, super cold, maybe you don't really like that You don't wine. really like that wine. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, you know. I um, mean, that's again, like, like make fun of people, but yeah. like, you know, if you need your Pinot Grigio ice cold. Then yeah, exactly. That's and like, why do we keep vodka ice cold? We want it to be neutral. We don't want it to taste like anything. Right. But then you drink your whiskey neat because you want to taste more of the flavor compounds a little closer to your body temperature. You do. I need some rocks, man. That shit is. Hard. I try. Oh, I, I try to be a neat guy. I like neat, then a couple drops, and then like finish with a rock. You yeah, know? <laughs> just to go through tasting. Yeah. Everything. Okay. Yeah. That's but like W set, we taste diluted. Um, just to really get the full right. flavor, you dilute 30 percent. So. Jeez. Yeah. How long did all this take you? But you're kind of an overachiever. She, I want, love... she wants her two-day ferments and whatnot. <laughs> I love like a grade. I know that uh-uh. someone was like, what drove you to like do all this? I just love like someone being like, yes, you passed, you know, or else how do I ever know? <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? That's a very human thing. People, yeah. people, this, this is one of the biggest lies on internet is like, I have zero fucks to give. And anybody who says that has got like a million fucks to give. Right. Yeah. The minute you say that, yeah, it's it, like, it, that's not true. Like, um, yeah. We all want some type of validation. <laughs> yeah. And it's just nice. Cause, yeah. No matter how many people, like I've had such a hard time. A lot of people in intros or like when I go on new shows and stuff will say like tasting expert. And I'm like, Ooh, am I? But yeah, I get you right, know, like, the imposter syndrome. Yeah. Like, yeah. Where's the certificate that says expert. I have taster certified taster, but I don't know about expert. I know. So. But I, I mean, like, I was like, damn, she's a certified taster. I know. I'm, I hope more people will – not necessarily you don't have to go through a rock, so it's very expensive. But, I mean, I just think thinking about taste as a skill, no matter your That was great. You uh, paid off your student loan and said, let me find some other stuff I can spend my education. I spent some money on. Well, it like, took me a couple of years to actually sign up because I was like, there's no way I'm going to do that. And then I was like, oh, well, yeah, it's great. Um, and so when was the book released? Uh, the last week of June. It's June. I think it was 27th. Right. So we met right before it got released. Yes. I think it was like days before. Yeah. Tasting yeah. It Grappa. Like two, it was like a week. Uh, I think it was like the 13th. So it was like two weeks before. Gotcha. And uh, you were a judge at the Grappa competition. Mm-hmm. I was doing what I do, drink <laughs> and talking shit. Um, there was one Grappa, was a Japanese woman, and she did her thing, had the tea in it. Did she she uh, clarified it with yogurt or no? Oh, did she use a yogurt? It was Yuki, right? Is that who? You're yeah, of? yeah, she's fantastic. Oh. She works at Martini's, great bar. That was my favorite. Now, I don't, I had I had to go, but like yeah. one, but like <laughs> I just thought it was so painstaking. Like, yeah. But as a judge, how do you grappa? You're probably you're definitely more qualified to talk about that. So talk about grappa as a spirit, and then what you're looking for in a grappa cocktail. 
Well, something that's great about grappa is it's like basically the byproduct of winemaking yes. redistilled. Yeah. So sustainable. We love it. Yep. Um, but because it is literally the byproduct, it's, they can have quite hot, quite rough flavors. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what you want in a grappa cocktail is to to be able to tell it's there, but that it's balanced, right? So you don't want it to be totally obscured, which although that cocktail you said it was delicious, I it could it, have been a vodka base. Yeah, no, it, it, it was. And that's why I was like, oh, crap, it's just, I just don't have hair on my chest. <laughs> right. You it, need like a little bit of that balance, but still getting some of that kind of natural, like that little bit of like roughness, earthiness that grappa has. Yeah. You want to be able to taste it come through while being balanced. Um, and also I think something, it's like a, a weird thing to say because every cocktail is drinkable. But the drinkability of a cocktail is really no, important. That's super Can you get you know? Are you swallowing seeds? Is the garnish getting in your way? Um, is there foam all around your face? Like, is it? <laughs> it really makes a big difference. Is the glass that they use cracked? Um, so I think what we were really looking for was that you could tell the grappa was there. It was a grappa competition. Um, that it was balanced overall, that it was creative. You know, you're not just using a classic cocktail and throwing some grappa in there. And then overall, like presentation and drinkability um, were the things that we were really judging on. So there was a few that, yeah, used grappa and a Negroni and they were like, here's my cocktail. Yeah. So you're like, that's great. It actually was a great drink. But what are you bringing of your own, you know, skill set or thought creativity? Um, and yeah, she clarified hers, uh, which one of the reasons she had to end up serving it warm because it takes so long to clarify. It's not yeah. like a great competition technique, but um, yeah. it was delicious. So you know if that would have been – if she had a full day to make it, it like, probably would have blown us out of the water. But yeah. yeah, served room temperature, couldn't really taste the grappa, that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, um, the one we ended up picking, I believe, or that one, like we just all scored it individually and then yeah. looked at our scores. Yeah. Um, but I think it had some like honey in there, which was a really nice compliment to some of that. Like you still get that very like tewa, floral, earthy kind of essence of a grappa, but it's balanced and with the sweetness. So it's not so hot and alcoholic and, um, yeah, it was great. It's a fun experience. What I you... love judging cocktail competitions. Do you? Okay. Yeah. So much more than like a spirits or beer competition. Why is that? I think... I like a lot of them that when they're in the moment, they're making it in front of you. So you okay. can – it's like a given that presentation is part of it. It's not like a blind flight where you're just sitting there. I also think judging creativity is something really interesting. When you're judging like five whiskeys next to each other, someone could be being creative. We just don't know. We're judging it blind. So I'm like, oh, this tastes a little weird. But maybe it was like a cognac cask whiskey. It was supposed to taste a little mm -hmm. different. So I like that they present you with your vision. And you can kind of grade them on whether that vision came to fruition, whether something's kind of, you know, out of left field. Maybe they're not thinking of a certain element and things like that. So I think that's – and, yeah, giving direct feedback that's not, like, on your distillation process, like, going back where they would have to change their whole production method. On a cocktail, you can say, hey, that foam is, like, it's breaking. You can see how the coconut fat's coming out. Let's think of a different way to emulsify that. And they can change it almost immediately, you know, instead of – feedback that it's like will it ever be taken that kind of stuff so i'm a big fan i just judged best cocktail in new york competition a couple weeks ago really yeah and, and what's the best cocktail in new york it ended up being a like cucumber now i can't even remember some kind of like a cucumber twist on a margarita so it's my ass because it wasn't that good no, no, <laughs> you know it wasn't every cocktail in new york that entered the competition no, I... it was very fun. <laughs> um i assume you get offers to do that a lot these days yeah yeah. I would I would look forward to more cocktail and spirits, yeah, judging. Like I told you, the more and more I judge beer, the more I'm like 
I look at kind of the way the system is judging and yeah, when you're talking all day about writing about our individual taste differences, how everyone mm -hmm. has a different experience, it's very hard for me to judge against a commercial beer as like the end all be all of a style. Yeah. Did you, are you currently um, book touring? Yes, I just got back from an event in LA um, at Now Serving, which was fun. We did a, partnered with Kipper. It's like a wine bar in downtown LA. Mm -hmm. um, I have events in Connecticut coming up, uh, obviously a couple in New York. Um, Saratoga Springs will be fun. And then going to take a break, I think, for December, January, and then start back up in the spring. So. Yeah, you get a full year of book tour when you have a book come out. Yeah, you get a whole <laughs> now. And when we were talking before we started the show, uh, you just recently you were able to visit Japan as one of your bucket list destinations. Yeah. Okay, and Kyoto. Yeah, I was in Osaka, Kyoto, uh, Tokyo, and then a little bit Nara, just like day trip. But okay. I'd always wanted to go there. So, what was what drew you to Japan? Mm -hmm. To um, as someone who's into taste and flavors. Yeah, I think um, something, you know, in America, we're like, can you put crunch on it? Can you put like something yeah. else to like make it interesting? It's super complex. Everything's flavors in your face. In Japan, things are quite subtle and focused. And I really especially wanted to go to Kyoto and dine on Kaiseki, which is very few ingredients in each dish. Every dish kind of highlights one perfect ingredient in their idea of perfect and very subtle on the seasoning like you're not getting nothing's candied nothing's crunchy like it's very um faithful to the natural ingredient and so i always wanted to i've had kaiseki in new york it's been wonderful but i just wanted to go and have that traditionally and it was really fun to go to some of those cocktail bars that are like now so much of new york's cocktail culture takes inspiration from Co tokyo cocktail bars where they're you know measuring each ingredient by weight and it's like making a single cocktail for 10 minutes and all of that um so, yeah, I'd always wanted to go. I had like three different trips planned and they all ended up not happening. So finally we made it. <laughs> it's like serious. Like yeah, in some of these places, like uh, like you said, it's like 10 minutes to make a freaking cocktail. Yeah, I went to a tea farm and just like, you know, doing the tea ceremony and learning about how they harvest their tea and um, just like the real care and it's so funny because like in New York, if you had – or in America, if you had a tea farm, you'd be like, well, what's the next thing? I want to take over the world. I want to do this. I'm going to have 10 products. And they're like – all they want is like the most beautiful tea they can make every season. It's perfect. And when it's out, it's out. They're not growing more. They grow within their community. It's just such a different culture of appreciation and like curation and expertise rather than like that kind of hustle culture that we tend to see a little more of. Yeah. I hear you. <laughs> that just um... – sparked a thought because i read uh rudy's book um not rudy's will godara um, reason hospitality yeah but the part about like they brought in there's a tea specialist like mm -hmm. like how like the rabbit hole i mean of flavor sweet is green hired a tea sommelier to do all their iced teas and people don't even think about tasting them yeah I got to That's what I'm saying. Every every moment of your day is like an opportunity to really every meal I guess that you eat is an opportunity to really like sit there and taste. And Sweet Green went out of their way to curate these iced teas. People drink them with a lid out of a straw. They can't even smell it. They don't even know what's going on. Um, because yeah, people do put care into it, and it's our job as the consumer to also care. 
I don't drink anything out of a straw. You get these little co- – I don't know why you give me a cocktail straw, first of all. <laughs> but, yeah. like, I'm like – because, like, you can't, you're keeping yourself away from the – Yeah, 80% of the flavor. Yeah. Exactly. Um, flavor shields. Flavor <laughs> – That's a good Lids one. and straws. Oh, my God. Flavor <laughs> shields. And then also in the book – and I've seen this on social media and I – okay, look. I'm a reasonably intelligent person. Mm-hmm. I know the water in my town is different than the water in Saratoga. It's different from water in Arizona. It's different from water in Colorado where Arizona gets its water from. (laughs) It's different from water in Iceland. How do we taste water? And... And and every time someone puts the wine, the the water sommelier, people are like, what the fuck? <laughs> well, it is also difficult because, to your point, I think sommelier ends up after a lot of specialists, like mustard sommelier. They just don't know what to call it. So yeah, I'm, like, now, now I'm getting these ads for olive oil sommelier. Yeah, right? it's like I talked to a couple of olive sommeliers. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. Like, don't like, can we just like <laughs> stop? Could we? Could you? You could be an olive oil expert. Like, why do we have to? Like, and you know what it is? It just goes to what you said. It's the it's the hoodwink and the bamboos. Like, oh, Somalia. It means this and that, right? Right, and that's like, so. You have to give some credit to Cicerone for at least it's not beer Somalia, which is also a certification. You yeah, get. no, no. Um, I, I love chicharrones. <laughs> but uh, with with water, so it's interesting because a lot of what those water experts or specialists uh, do is. When you think about eating water with food, especially the balance of pH or the minerality, mm-hmm. what is, what's on your menu, that actually is going to change of course. the pH of your saliva, how everything changes. So I think people kind of roll their eyes. But in, in a restaurant setting, what is it? Um, Danny Meyer like decided he was going to switch from Fuji to a different or, – or vice versa. And yeah. it was like a huge thing with all of his restaurants and every chef had to taste all their things with the water blind. And it's like I, – I get it. If you're If you want to serve your food – in the perfect, you know, light, and someone's drinking a sip of water with every bite, you want it to be the most complimentary oh and God, not change the how taste. How boring! No, I love food it. Food with water. <laughs> well, no, and that's what I think people don't think about when pairing. Right? Is like so much of what you're eating with when you're pairing is like the aftertaste of your wine, and when people you know, oh, describe 100%. a wine, they don't always say, "Oh, and this is the aftertaste." If you have you know, some rip and tannins or something and you're going to take your next bite of food, that's going to change it versus something that's like a very sweet or creamy, you know, that mouth coating feeling. Um, and it's like often not even in the descriptor what the aftertaste is or people don't think about it. And I think that's something I talk about a little bit in the book, too. It's just like when you're thinking of pairing what's actually going on. Um, but, yeah, I think water specialists have their place. Brewing water, huge difference. It's like I've had all of our water chemically tested because it makes a big well, that's 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 Augie's big thing. He talks, he talks about the water in Atlantic Highlands where his brew is. He's like, you know, and, and that's where he gets his terroir mm. and his his beers is the water. Um, oh, so he doesn't he doesn't do any balance like chloride or sulfate or anything to it. He oh. just, just uses municipal water. Fascinating. I mean, I do too, yeah, but I yeah. add a bunch of sulfate. And yeah. Stuff. I mean, I don't, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know the recipes. <laughs> Actually, I'm thinking we might have to do a collab with you. <laughs> oh I'll yeah. That up. That'd be really cool. <laughs> Which is what? Do some saison. I know. Um, he, I think he'd be into it. Yeah, farmhouse beers. Yeah. Favorite. I mean, he's got he's got everything. He's got the car. He's got oak cast. I mean, he's got he's got it. I mean, yeah. if, you, if you go into the tasting house, it's it's all saison. It's all incredible beers from the world up there. Amazing. Um. So, <laughs> uh, this has been really cool. Um, couple things before I let you go because. 
Mandy's decked out. She's got to go to uh, somewhere special after the podcast. Um, so play a game. Um, right. It's called Slap, Lick, Fondle. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm going to give you three beverages and you, know, you get to slap one, you get to lick one, and, and one you fondle. Um, okay. So for you, the, the the big taster, we're gonna do, we'll do um, whiskey, just general whiskey, just general whiskey. Okay. I'm gonna give you whiskey, sake, oh, and beer. Who oh, are you gosh. slapping? Who are you licking? Who are you fondling? I mean, if we're thinking means as general, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I'm fondling sake. I think you can spend the most time with sake. It's so varied. Like I said, it's so precise and so interesting. Every single sake, they would describe to you the aftertaste on every bottle. Like they're so thoughtful. Can't get enough sparkling sake. I'm all about it. Um, so slap is like I don't like it. Yeah, it's so funny because people are like, no, I might want to slap that, but yeah, <laughs> however you want. Yeah, so, yeah, slap is like, ah, get out of here. I guess in this, I'd have to slap whiskey. I wow. I love bourbon. Yeah. Um, I I yeah, I love whiskey. I mean, but beer. You know, I can't, I can't be slapping beer. It's my, (laughs) my homeland. Um, But yeah, you know, it's one of those things you specialize in something for so long that it almost becomes, it's hard to shock me now in beer. Whereas like sake, everything's fascinating to me and I'm still learning so much about whiskey. Um, But yeah, beers, I owe a lot to that that humble beverage. So I can't be slapping it. All right. For real. (laughs) Love it. And um, what are you most excited about uh, in the future? I I want to use my broadcast journalism scores or skills more. So I'm hoping to do some video series, some more reporting um, that way. That's uh, talking about taste with the book I'm hoping is going to open that up. I also very lucky my book tasting event or my book events are all tasting events. I don't have to just read to people. Right. So I'm looking forward to it. It's been so fun. When people taste and they actually do that, like, ooh, ah, thing. It's Don't like, you, yeah, yeah. I love it. Yeah. Like, I, I feel like even whiskey tasting events, I've never had when they I teach, like, a retro-nasal sniff technique. And people will be like, oh, wow. And just that little, like, sound, I'm like, oh, they're going to tell someone about this. And having that person-to-person connection is so nice after not teaching as many live classes and stuff since COVID. Um, so that I'm looking forward to, getting around the country and doing more of it. Awesome. Yeah. Mandy, thanks so much. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks Thank for coming. Thank you for having in. me. So fun. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, tell people where they can find you. How they can be a part of what you're doing. Where they can yes. find the book and et cetera and so on. Your website. I'm drinks with Mandy on Instagram, TikTok. What else? I mean, Twitter doesn't really exist anymore. So that's where you can find me. And then the book, howtotastebook.com. And the book also has its own Instagram, how to taste book. So if you look up how to taste book, you'll you'll find me. Um, and yeah, if anyone has tasting questions, I love. I, I sometimes take a while to get to my DMs, but I eventually do get to all of them. So <laughs> <laughs> I was that way when I first started. Now I'm just like, look, if I don't know you, stop sliding. <laughs> but yes, I hear you. I do. Yeah, if you ask a good question, if you ask a question, in a, yeah, I'm like, you could Google I don't that. Exactly. Like you could Google yeah. that one. <laughs> Yeah, I guess I should just start answering with buy the book. But, yeah, exactly. Um, it's all in the book. Yeah. yeah.
<laughs> and for all the listeners out there, don't forget to check out the show notes for each episode. You'll find info on, you know, I'll list the wine we had, which you can find it, which is a great house wine. You can mix it. Cheap Any sparkling cheerful. cocktail, mimosas, ba-bam. Mm-hmm. Um, and just something to just to, to uh, drink on its own. It's delicious. Uh, I'll put links to um, her uh, website and her, uh, her uh, Instagram handle. And uh, till next time, cheers to the Mavericks, philosophers, deep thinkers, and all you wine drinkers. It's your boy MJ saying peace. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something. You had some fun while you were here. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to. And if you want to be an insider and get special content, make sure you go over to blackwineguy.com and get on our email list.